Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. Welcome to the second part of our interpretation of Frank Lloyd Wright's 1903 essay, The Art and Craft of the Machine. Today, we will take our ongoing inquiry into dualism a step deeper and further explore what challenges machine reproduction presented design with. By 1923, European modernism had already embraced the notion of reality as substance dualistic. Machine process put a capstone on a centuries-old philosophical edifice. Despite the recent overturning of strict Newtonian mechanics and a surge in philosophical vitalism, a mechanistic worldview still held firm. Whether by divine intervention or through a divinely rare accident, humans were sentient, and all other things, even plants and animals as per Descartes, were thought of as non-conscious, dumb matter. The human creature was alone in facing a material world that was not just distinct and separate, but openly inimical to him. It was also the case that the Western cultures which held such a worldview from roughly the year 1000 onwards had aggrandized themselves by daring to take on this alien material world, and whatever savage elements dwelled within it. Galileo wrote of subduing a mysterious, foreign nature to compel her to disclose herself. Improving the tactics by which we fought back the forces of nature turned the Sisyphean struggle of pre-modern man into the Faustian bargain of our times, built on temporary reprieves to an ultimately fatal contract. And though our pact against nature is proving to be unsustainable and maladaptive, perceiving the external and unknown as separate and adversarial to the human was amongst the mainstays of all modern progress. As the turbid fruits of the Industrial Revolution pushed the 19th century through the threshold of the 20th, the machine and its component processes of factory production appeared to be closing the curtain on mankind's domination with the surrounding environment becoming less natural and more constructed, the conception of the self as isolated meant that machines were added to the list of mankind's rivals. Though the early outcry of expressionism, which we covered in previous episodes, lamented the onslaught of so-called materialism, as the vice turned tighter, and machine logic became inexorable, modernist artists, some of them one-time expressionists, began to bend the knee. The industrial process, both by design and through consumption, 
distanced thought from physicality. Dualism became not just a philosophical vantage, but the Western way of life, as a result of which old master builders come modern designers no longer felt the need to get their hands dirty. Families could purchase kettles without getting coppersmith's soot on their soles or green stains on their cuffs. However, what many artists accurately saw as an increase in alienation, they also mislabeled as materialism. When we last quoted Theo van Doesburg saying that every machine is the spiritualization of an organism, he did have one thing in the right perspective. Industrial, and especially post-industrial society, is, at its root, anti-material. This may give us some pause, because we are told that our culture is pervasively materialistic, but a true materialist would value material highly. Instead, the streams of consumer production treat material not as a cherished thing, but as invisible trash or replaceable commodity. All too often, matter is consumed in a pursuit of happiness, a spiritual state of being. So, it is hardly coincidental that Frank Lloyd Wright remarked that a significant element of his philosophy, which never took root in Europe, was the organic architect's requisite feeling for materials. A dualistic mindset puts an individual in a fundamental opposition to a material universe outside himself. To the extent in which this world is controlled, or at a safe remove, the individual is detached from common drudgery. This also bestows on him the possibility of leading an examined life, if he were so inclined to take it. And if the path from dualism through analysis to anti-materialism still seems tenuous, Consider how the Bauhaus designer Marcel Breuer, famous for his chairs, stated that every year we are getting better, as he strained to minimize the physical components of his furniture so that soon we would be sitting on a resilient column of air. Even if our furniture has not quite gone from stuffy wingback chair to floating force field, one need only Google the word selfie to find evidence of just how humans choose to fill time in a labor-saving world that moves the individual away from the material and towards the virtual. That a knowing, constructive protest against anti-material inclinations could surface as early as Wright's 1903 essay did not just reveal how intellectually advanced American modernism was. The careful scrutiny and application of such ideas could light a designer's way out of the style cycle doldrums that continue to stall us even today.
The final part of our last episode covered how Wright argued that the identity of a culture was profoundly imbricated in its material vestiges, chiefly among them, architecture. Common to his critique of both the Victorian academic architecture of the 19th century and the eventual international style of the 20th was Wright's belief that true design should be a development from within, as an emergent process. Much of the body of his lecture is spent on decrying recent imitative architectural movements as a Belshazzar feast of Renaissance, alluding to Daniel's prophecy of an empire being weighed in the balance and found wanting. Throughout his life, Wright would be frustrated that no governments, universities, or patrons would play Belshazzar to his Daniel. Here was a great architectural prophet, but few were even asking him what the signs meant. Not long after his death, Walter Gropius would comment that in 1940, Wright had complained bitterly about the treatment he had received in his own country and that he was understandably quite envious of the advantages a state school like the Bauhaus had appeared to provide. In 1903, Wright opened his lecture at the Hull House in Chicago by asking how machines should be used. His answer was that they should be used properly and not be dismissed. As a new tool, it had been grasped by the blade, as lacerated hands everywhere testify. But why was Western civilization mishandling the machine at all? Wright argued that our value relationship to the machine was backwards. As the 19th century developed, humans found themselves increasingly and paradoxically at the service of machines. As Wright put it, the machine is contrary to the principle of organic growth, but imitating it, working irresistibly the will of man through the medium of men. All of us are drawn helplessly into its mesh as we tread our daily round. Similar recognition coming later in the century from pioneers in the field of computer science that this very circumstance must be reversed, that technology must adapt to the human rather than the human to the technology, was to produce a revolutionary explosion without which you would not be listening to my voice through the device it is currently playing on. But four decades prior to the opening salvo of this invisible revolution, Wright was clearly stating the humanist imperative of design as independently valuable. The mere isolation of that variable was an event. Prior to this, 
Such values had been typically tied to the pitting of traditional arts and crafts versus machine production. By exalting humanist values as a distinct, indeed a central, facet of architectural philosophy, Wright took the decisive step that allowed the machine to be demystified, and then acknowledged as another common tool. The root problem was not, as he said, the machine, but how buildings were being created and related to in our day and age. Now it was as if the scales weighing architecture had been more clearly balanced, even if our cities were still found wanting. Anthropocentric values were properly placed foremost, allowing one to judge just how machines should be shaped to our needs. The purpose of tools, machines included, is to enable us to reckon and to set those very scales. However, even within this adjusted perspective, Wright saw a reality of untrammeled industry thumbing the scales against us again. Machines gained a manner of primitive life of their own, and Wright invites the viewer to imagine the Chicago cityscape as a celibate machine, stripped bare of all Edwardian pretense, seen from above at night. It is with us as though we were controlled by some great crystallizing principle going on in nature all around us, and going on in spite of ourselves, even in our very own natures. If you would see how interwoven it is, this thing we call the machine, with the warp and the woof of civilization, beneath you is the monster stretching out into the far distance. High overhead hangs a stagnant pall, its fetid breath reddened with light from myriad eyes endlessly, everywhere blinking. Thousands of acres of cellular tissue outspread, enmeshed by an intricate network of veins and arteries radiating into the gloom. This wondrous tissue is knit and knit again and interknit with a nervous system marvelously effective and complete, with delicate filaments for hearing and knowing the pulse of its own organism, acting intelligently upon the ligaments and tendons of motive impulse, and in it all is flowing the impelling electric fluid of man's own life. perhaps intentionally. This description of the relationship between city and man treads the boundary between the symbiotic and the parasitic. A primitive life form, starting out as a crystal, floridly evolves into an immersive respiring amoeba 
then into something striated with diverse tissue, nerve systems, and sensory organs. And the life force of humanity is this megastructure's blood. But we can't kill the monster we inhabit. To a great extent, it is us. While today, the world's population is more than 50% urban, the U.S. crossed that threshold almost 100 years before. This has long since made us dependent on industry for sanitation needs alone. Wright states that if industrial power is to be uprooted, then civilization is already doomed. Dr. Frankenstein must befriend his creature or perish. Importantly, urban structure is deposited particle by particle in blind obedience to law, law no less organic as far as we are concerned than the laws of the great solar universe. This is the first step in the great paradigm shift that this essay presents. The solar system, once regarded as mechanical clockwork, is here acknowledged as organic. This represents nothing less than a cosmological shift. The progression from a universe of divine spheres rotated by angels to a systematic mechanism based on the predictive laws of Newton had opened the door to centuries of scientific discovery. Wright would then imply that the solar system as an organic entity is distinct from the divine sphere model by having a lifespan, and from the Newtonian by being alive. Our current understandings of nuclear fusion and solar wind fit this new perspective better than the previous two. The eruptive blooms of solar flares signal to us in the aurora. As the solar system lives, so does a city. The organic patterns are integrated in our lives rather than separate from them. But we have only just begun to glimpse, with Wright's buildings being one example, what will come of this new outlook. And the reference to Newtonian mechanics is apropos in that he stood, himself a giant, on the shoulders of a giant. Now, the law by which urban structure is deposited could be none other than the maxim of his teacher Sullivan, form ever follows function. In Wright's essay, less than a decade after Sullivan's articulation, stands the clearest secondary explication of Sullivan's idea that we have yet read. Form following function is hereby a statement about emergent structure. Utilitarian thoughts of so-called functionalist architecture are perhaps associated 
with form-following function, but thoroughly distinct. In Sullivan and Wright's perspective, an architect following this fundamental law would humbly submit to a disciplined and carefully analyzed understanding of imposing circumstance and expressive dynamics. Design in this method would not, as in what came to be called functionalism, be the local application of preconceived axiomatic reason. Like complex algebra, the law concerns functions, but describes things organic. Even the straight lines of a city street or an iron bridge are organic when appropriately developed. This thinking is entirely divergent from the sensuous curves of Art Nouveau, or from, say, René Benet's biomimetic architectural feature for the Paris Exposition of 1900, which was inspired by the shapes of seashells and microorganisms, basically a Rococo revival with the microscope as an excuse. Wright's essay is far closer to emergent morphogenesis, wherein shapes are produced that don't need to refer to anything beyond their own genetic or epigenetic coding. Wright was not just more than half a century ahead of the Japanese metabolist architects or England's archigram. He was quite nearly anticipating the information age. Zooming in from the cityscape panorama, he draws the audience's gaze nearer inside the building ablaze with midnight activity. A spotless paper band is streaming into the marvel of the multiple press, receiving indelibly the impression of human hopes and fears throbbing in the pulse of this great activity as infallibly as the gray matter of the human brain receives the impression of the senses. The doings of all the world are reflected here as in a glass. And here something else has decisively changed. Imagine Wright is describing not a newspaper, but your smartphone. The metaphor still fits. But this pre-sentiment of the information age is merely part of a broader point. Though Wright appears to understand well enough the imminent eruption of a digital Athena pounding within a colossal financial brow, it is the imminence of the whole world reflected in a cybernetic brain that really tips his hand. It is this specific notion of the whole world mirrored in one point, a locus solus, or conversely, the self mirrored in the world that is essential to and demanded by organic architecture and impossible to achieve within substance dualism. To truly love material, 
to be materialistic in the manner that organic architecture calls for, one must step beyond the ego separation we mentioned at the beginning of this episode. In recent years and decades, biology and neuroscience have surpassed prior limits and problems by insisting that identity is a dialogue between embodiment and the environment. In biology, today you can't describe an animal without involving the environment that it inhabits and configurates. The phenomenon of consciousness is not located within the brain, but in a relationship between the environment and the individual, and perhaps even between the environment and populations. Frank Lloyd Wright crossed a similar threshold at a remarkably early stage. Without knowing it, architecture anticipated science. However, because the connection between self and unself bleeds out beyond physics, that is, into the metaphysical, spiritual language is sometimes invoked. Wright often remarked on his belief in God as nature with a capital N, and this helps describe his viewpoint. In the opening notes to his 1953 book, The Future of Architecture, he wrote of the earliest builder's works, Man's imagination made the gods, and so he made a god-like building. He dedicated it to the god he had made. His architecture was something out of his practical self to his ideal self. The divine and the environment were not distinct from the individual. According to this line of argument, the buildings were thereby suffused with an otherworldly sense of personal connection that individuals still feel today in cathedrals, tombs, and other such artifacts. The age of machines had men imagining abstract, non-self systems and generating mechanical architecture. Frank Lloyd Wright's response to this was hardly an atavistic revival of the often brutal old days, though the spirit of supra-dualist connection remained the same. Wright's goal was to recover the powers which ancient architecture had possessed without resorting to the self-defeating task of imitation. With his divine being holistic nature, human identity is not some fragment of consciousness set loose by a creator. Humanity is an outgrowth of its own surroundings and a grower of them. Any material related to the individual, and any object created by him, is therefore of the same stuff as himself. As we shape the world, we shape ourselves. One need not worship nature in order to adopt this perspective. 
The most important point of departure expressed in the essay, what is indeed essential to any process of design, is how one sees the world. The question of action arises as, do we persist in treating everything as dumb material, or will we continue to enter this new conception of built space by seeing beyond the ordinary definition of the self? We maintain that this transformation in worldview from an isolated ego within substance dualism to mirrored identity functions like a definitive magnetic orientation. The chosen polarity will necessarily shape the beliefs and works of the artist or designer. In earlier episodes, our discussions of Kandinsky mentioned how he almost passed through this door, but fell back into fully interior reflection, which eventually led into a labyrinth of geometric isolation. His texts show the marks of a persistent dualist perspective, which is partly why he took the path towards the expression of a highly geometric inner truth. Wright himself would soon contend to reverse the polarity of these high modernist axioms. His response was the exaltation of the third dimension, materials, and integral ornament. Expressionism, inside out, next on Lapsus Lima. <laughs>